Um, tonight what we're going to do is we're going to continue our discussion about Hinduism and try to understand what Hinduism is all about. And the reason for this is because there's actually a lot of Hindus that live in Canada. And not only that, but there's a lot of elements of Hindu philosophy that has actually invaded Western culture. I sometimes find it interesting that evangelicals are very, very, very concerned about the rise of Islam in the West. Well, I can tell you straight up, Hinduism has a far more successful, has had a far more successful impact on Western culture than Islam ever will have. Uh, Hinduism is much more peaceful, and so people don't get all worked up about it, but Hinduism, elements of Hinduism uh, are found in much of uh, Western culture. And last week we had a bit of a discussion, which I wasn't anticipating we would have, but we had a bit of a discussion on the concept of yoga, and I suggested to you that I'm quite oblivious to how yoga actually works because it's just not my cup of tea. I know that surprises some of you. But uh, some of you have had some exposure to yoga and subsequently sent me some information on it. So what I would like to do before we actually get into the notes, I just want to share some, some uh, points of concern that, uh, about, about yoga with you. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in throwing anybody under the bus who practices yoga but um, certainly there are some warnings that maybe you need to be aware of, at least, as you evaluate the kind of yoga that you may or may not be part of. So I'd like to share some thoughts with you out of this blog entry. It's quite a lengthy one. I haven't even had a chance to read the whole thing. But um, I love the title. The title is Christian Yoga? Question mark. It's a stretch. And... Um, it's written by uh, Mark Driscoll. You may have uh, heard of him. He's a well-known American pastor. And I'll just highlight some thoughts out of this article. And again, just stuff for you to think about. We don't necessarily need to debate it, but it's just stuff for you to think about and um, to sort of throw into your, your, uh, your analysis of maybe some of the experiences you've personally had with yoga. And I know many, many of you told me later on that you had. So he basically starts out, he says... Um, there's nothing wrong with stretching, with exercising, or regulating one's stress through breathing. But when the tenets, he uses the word tenets, of yoga are included, it is by definition a worshipful act to a spirit being other than the God of the Bible. And then he goes on to uh, make some uh, statistical claims. He says there are over, and I assume this is a U.S. statistic, there are over 15.8 million people practicing yoga and nearly every store you go to is now selling all kinds of yoga products okay so i mean even if the yoga is completely stripped clean of any sort of spiritual overtones it still comes out of hinduism so that in and of itself demonstrates at least some measure of influence from hinduism into western culture in addition to transcendental meditation and um, pluralism and, and all that kind of or, or secularism and so forth a couple more things I want to point out. He says, um, when looking at the acceptance of yoga in the Christian church, I find there are two issues at hand. The first issue is this. People simply don't understand what yoga is, its roots or its tenets. And secondly, 
Uh, people think that they can engage in yoga because it's just stretching while ignoring the religious aspects of the practice of yoga. So he then tries to uh, help his readers understand what yoga is. And I'm just sort of skipping ahead here page by page. Uh, historically, and we talked about this last week, he says, historically the purpose behind yoga is to achieve union with the Hindu concept of God. So that is a truth claim that historically at least yoga was a means of attaining union with God, right? So in pantheistic monism, monism, if you, if you can't remember what that means, just think one-ism, that there's no distinction between creator and created, there's no distinction between anything, we're all part of the cosmic one, and while we may have been separated out from the cosmic one, we're living our lives out in the form of human beings, we are all in fact part of one cosmic reality. And the goal of Hinduism is to be reattached to or reintegrated into that cosmic one. So that's pantheistic monism. He says, he suggests that it's nearly, nearly impossible to practice yoga and at least completely divorce it from its spiritual elements. Uh, Hinduism, uh, he says, is, uh, interestingly, there's a number of Hindus that are upset with the secularization of yoga and they consider it a sort of intellectual property theft because for them, the purpose of yoga is very clear, reattachment with the cosmic one. So he says that th these sentiments have led a growing number of Hindus to want to take yoga back or take back yoga and make sure that it's understood in its proper form. He suggests that there's some archaeological artifacts in the Indus Valley dating from 2500 BCE that show some of the the uh, practices of yoga. A um, couple other points. The goal of yoga is to develop the desired pure state of consciousness, making it necessary to withdraw from the input of one's senses and develop one's powers of concentration. Ways in which this is accomplished, uh, first by concentrating on sounds by chanting the names of Hindu gods or sacred Om, which uh, Pananjali said is the voice of God. So I think at least one student suggested that that was a form of yoga that they'd been exposed to. Focusing on images like the tip of your nose or a religious icon or concentrating on one's own breath. The purpose of these exercises, he claims, both physical and mental, was to attain a state of pure consciousness where the practitioner begins to lose the distinction between the subject, self, and the object, whatever that is that one is focusing on, in order to feel at one with the universe or God. Uh, further down... Uh, he outlines the nature of monism or oneism. There's no distinction between creator and created. Obviously, this would be, from a Christian perspective, a violation of Romans 1.25. There is not a focus on looking on Jesus for salvation, but rather for enlightenment and peace. So if you're in a yoga class and there's any sort of reference to enlightenment or peace apart from Christ, you're barking up the wrong tree because there is no peace apart from Christ. Third, there's no distinction between good and evil since all is one, which leads to cultural pluralism and a denial of truth. Fourth, there's no distinction between humans and creation since all is one, therefore lessening the value of the individual human life. And there's no distinction between religions as all spiritualities are one, resulting in a vague spirituality, and people saying things like, there are many ways to grow spiritually, all religions are the same, you don't have to have a religion, you're just spiritual. By the way, whenever you hear that talk in Canadian culture, you can always trace it back to the East. We think it's just as a result of secularism. No, it's not. 
Go back 50, 60, 70 years, virtually everybody in the West was a theist, an atheist, or an agnostic, or a deist, or in one of those categories. But as Easterners began to come into Western culture, uh, we think it just sort of happened as a result of secularism. But in fact, the idea that everybody's okay, all religions are one, all truths lead to God, that's, that's a residual of Hinduism and Buddhism and some of the other Eastern religions. He then goes on to outline different forms of yoga. Apparently, there's a whole bunch. There's bhakti yoga. This is based upon the belief that we are manifestations of God. And um, then there's hatha yoga. This system of yoga is based upon physical activity and is the type of yoga most commonly practiced in the West. The purpose of the postures and the breathing exercises is to free the more subtle spiritual elements of the mind. The development of the will power of concentration and self-withdrawal. And finally, they're designed to open the energy channels, which in turn allow spiritual energy to flow freely. So I would say to you that any of that kind of stuff is, is out of bounds for the Christian. It also stresses uh, advice on how to conquer stress through breathing, meditation, or exercise, which... I have yet to find any place in the Bible that says that's how we conquer stress or anxieties. But rather, even though that's commonly fought among even Christians, stress and anxiety and all that kind of stuff are fundamentally conquered through an encounter with the living Christ. And when one centers their meditative thoughts and their focus on him, the Bible says he brings peace that passes or surpasses human understanding. So stress and anxiety are ultimately solved through that. Self-control is not something that the Bible says that we come to by simply simple willpower or focus, a focused mind, uh, but rather passages like 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Okay, it's a spiritual discipline that comes about as a result of an encounter with Christ. So a num number of interesting points in here. I'd be interested in your feedback if you have any, but certainly any form of yoga uh, that emphasizes uh, decluttering the mind or ridding yourself of stress merely through mental processes or physical exercises is somewhere between neutral and dangerous, uh, but probably doesn't fall into the camp of Christians. So any, any comments or questions on Driscoll's article on yoga that you might want to share with the class or questions you might want to ask? Don't be shy if you disagree. Tammy? Oh, so they, someone came in and did that? Oh, yeah? Okay.
No, no, that's good. Well, w without question, I don't even know if Om is part of all yoga, but without question, that's, that is the cr that's the crucial chant within Hinduism. Without question, it is. And uh, even if you're not aware of it, it's kind of like you know, practicing some discipline and using some sort of chants or incantations to the devil that an occultist might use. I, why would a Christian want to do that and potentially open up opportunities for encounters with the demonic? So. Well, we talked about this last week. There's nothing wrong with meditation that involves filling one's mind with truth and contemplating the attributes of God, the activities of God, the things of God, uh, the words of God. Um, I'm just looking at the Psalms here. Um, Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, day and night's a, a merism. It means throughout the whole course of one's life. It doesn't literally mean 24-7 or you would die for lack of sleep. And meditation here is the same Hebrew word, at, at least the root, that one would use of a cow that chews and rechews its cud, digests it, brings it back up, chews it, rechews it. So the idea is like an ongoing reflection on, meditation on, uh, biblical truth. So as I mentioned last week, one could say that biblical meditation always involves a filling of the mind with truth, and it's by filling one's mind with truth that error flees and that one protects themselves, develops the powers of discernment to be able to protect oneself from, oneself from lies. Okay? Now, um, in Eastern thought, meditation is an emptying of the mind. Now, that emptying of the mind often comes about through some sort of an exercise where you focus on an image or a concept or an object, and as you focus on that long enough, you sort of, it's sort of, um, uh, you, you, you know, you, you, your mind is finally cleared. And in that clarity of your mind, by clearing your mind, one, in a sense, understands or enters back into ultimate reality or unconsciousness. Because that's the ultimate goal of Hinduism, is to rid oneself from your individuality and to go back into the cosmic whole. To not just be disembodied and have a soul apart from the body, but literally to disintegrate the self into the cosmic one. Yeah, so meditation could be... Um, I mean, strictly speaking, meditation would be thinking, spiritual thoughts, to use a, a maybe a more understandable word, thinking about truth, mulling it over, thinking about the connections between what you've read or heard preached and life or your understanding of God, sorting through the, the truth or half-truths that you might have heard, contemplating would be another way of putting it, contemplating the things of God, thinking. You know, by the way, I, I think that one of the greatest problems in the church today. It's not the only problem, but one of the greatest problems in the church today is, is we haven't been taught how to use our minds well. And even in our language, we say, let's give our hearts to Jesus. 
Well, Jesus wants more than your heart. He wants your body. He wants your mind. He wants your hands, your feet. He wants everything. So it's more than just an emotional connection to God. God wants us to give our whole selves, mind, body, soul, and spirit to his service and his plans. And um, through that, we learn what it means to be Christ-like. So thinking, learning to think well, like critical, not, not become a, so, not to become a critical person. That's not what we want to be. And we don't want to be uh, people that are, you know, all, all head and no heart, all mind, you know, just filled with doctrine, but no active engagement in the world. That's not what we're talking about. But uh, we need to be people who are thoughtful people and, and try to maximize our, our, our individual potential because we all have different levels of potential in terms of thinking capacity, to think clearly about the issues of life and not sort of be driven back and forth by trends or sloppy thinking or false doctrine. We all, we all want to make sure that we're thinking as clear as we possibly can be. And meditation enables us to do that. So, I mean... I don't want you just to come to church and, for instance, listen to my teaching and preaching, just fill your head with truth and go to here and not think about it. I want you to think about it. And hopefully most of the things that I say are, in fact, true. But surely, with all the yapping I do, there's going to be times when I say things that maybe aren't true or aren't fully true or need to be connected with some other truth to really be useful. So you need to critically analyze and evaluate what you hear from preachers and teachers you also need to critically analyze your understanding of what you're reading in the Word of God because what you understand to be reading in the Word of God may not, in fact, be what the Word of God intends you to understand. Right? We can be guilty of reading our meaning into the text or misreading the text or whatnot. So I would encourage you in your spiritual life to think of your walk with the Lord as more than an emotional experience, although it is that. It's more than an active experience, like feeding the poor and feeding the widows and, and serving in the church, although it is that. It's also an intellectual relationship where God wants our minds to be filled with truth. And so we, we meditate, even now, if you're thinking about what you're hearing, you're meditating, in a sense, on that, processing it, mulling it over and up and against everything you've heard in the past, your experience, your understanding of Scripture, your trying to make the connections, and that helps you to be a good thinker, right? So just remember, Eastern meditation, empty the mind. Biblical meditation, you fill the mind. This doesn't mean you need to be thinking a mile a minute all the time. You know, there's times when you might want to just sort of chill out and, uh, you know, watch the Super Bowl or something like that. But uh, you should have lots of opportunity in your life where you, you are thinking and mulling over the things of God. Yeah. Other comments or questions? Yes, Mrs. Rock? Oh, you better not, girl. <laughs>
Well, that's a good point. I mean, we are integrated beings, and one aspect of humanity always impacts and affects every other aspect of humanity. So, if you um, are in a situation where you're a couch potato and you never, you know, move your limbs and get your muscles working and all that kind of stuff, I mean, certainly you could end up in a spiritual funk chalk it up to the devil, when in reality it's because you're not offering your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice and taking good care of the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is primarily your body. So um, I, I think it's true because I've experienced it, and of course many people would testify to this, that you go for a run or you work out or whatever it might be that you do for physical exercise, and there is a sense in which your, your, your body is at ease. But I'm not sure that the goal, the, the ultimate goal of physical exercise is to uh, rid oneself of mental or emotional stress, even though there's a connection between the two. The question would be, like, what's the stress from? Is it because you're, you sort of got cabin fever, you're not using your, your body properly? Or is it because maybe there are aspects of your life that you haven't turned over to the supremacy of God, the lordship of God, and maybe there's an attempt to free yourself from sin or lack of trust in God simply through spiritual exercise, it's not going to happen. So if a person goes exercising in order to try to free themselves from a lack of spiritual discipline or from um, a lack of contentment or peace in God himself, you can exercise all you want. You can be a big muscular bodybuilder, far more of an exerciser than I ever will be, but still have anxiety, panic attacks, stress, lack of contentment in God, and the exercise in and of itself is not going to take that away. So I agree that there can be a measure of um, health that comes about from physical exercise and it might even affect your mind in some way. But if a person is struggling with anxiety or stress of a spiritual nature because they're not trusting in God, because they are not applying God's promises to their life, you can exercise all you want, it's still going to be there. You can do yoga all you want, it's still going to be there. The ultimate solution to that kind of anxiety or stress is to steady one's mind upon the Lord Jesus Christ and God's promises and plans for our lives. Dela?
Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's times when I just might feel sluggish. That's when I don't have a good walk around the neighborhood or whatever. But if I was feeling like spiritual attack or anxiety that I understood was really a result of a lack of trust in God's promises, I can go for a walk mile after mile after mile. It's not going to do anything. That's not the source of my peace. That's not the source of overcoming my anxiety. I can stretch. I can do all kinds of funky moves at a yoga class. It's not going to ultimately solve the problem. If the problem is a, a lack of trust in God's ability to do what only God can do. And um, to make it very practical, even when we talk about trusting in God and overcoming anxiety, it, it, I mean, it, it involves thinking. Like it involves reminding oneself about who God is, about what God's promises are, and choosing to re-believe those promises to be true and center one's life on them. It's not just sort of a esoteric, emotional trust, but it, it, it again comes back, it involves the mind, recalling to mind the promises of God, recalling to mind that God's been around for a lot longer than us, that he knows the, the past, the present, the future, that he's trustworthy, that he's bigger than us. And all, all these kinds of biblical concepts help us to, in a sense, refocus or recenter ourselves on the Lord. But I think as Susie was alluding to, it's, it's true that you might just feel sort of all worked up and tense and stressed out, but it's not really spiritual nature. It's because your body is all tight and in knots because you're just sitting around on a computer all day long or something like that. And getting out and kind of, you know, getting things moving could just make you feel better physically, which probably is going to some way affect your emotions or your state of mind as well, but it's not the ultimate solution to anxiety. Yeah, no. Mm -hmm. No, it's a good point. Well, you know, I th I'm sure all of us at points in our lives have worried. I have worried about things, it's like stuff that's kept me up literally at night, or I've woken up and you roll over and, and it's on your mind, and you're laying there for two hours thinking about it, right? But eventually those things pass, but they don't pass just by continuing to motor through life. They, for me, they pass as I remind myself about the sovereignty of God, about the fact that he's bigger than my problems, uh, about the fact that he can resolve relationships if it's a relational issue, about the fact that he's sovereign, about the fact that I don't have to try to control my way through life or control other people to get what I want. Whatever, whatever it is that is, has caused the worry or the anxiety ultimately is resolved not just with time. Time does nothing in and of itself. But in time, as you think about the things of God or you, th you kind of look at things from a different perspective then the worry dissipates, the anxiety dissipates. And then, you know, a month or two later, you're thinking back, why, did, why was I ever even concerned about that? But at the time, it's because you, you were either trying to control your circumstances, you weren't meditating on the things of God, 
uh, you're too easily offended by something someone said or didn't say or did or didn't do. And when you sort of pinpoint that, uh, you're able to get rid of it. But if, if we think that solving our anxiety or depression is just you know, meditating upon a singular object or emptying our minds of all of our problems, that's just not, it's not biblical. It's not a biblical concept of meditation. Ben? Yeah, good point. The thing of it is, too, is we, if, if you've been living in Western culture for a few generations, or you've spent your, your personal entire life in Western culture, you sort of get used to a certain Western perspective on, let's say, meditation, even if you've never thought about the word, or spent a lot of time thinking about what your great -grand how your great-grandparents would have thought of that word. And I think in some ways our sensitivities to things that really are grounded in Eastern religion have been reduced because it's been part of most of our culture since the time we were born. And we don't necessarily see it for what it is. But end of the day, detaching yourself from reality, meditating on nothingness, emptying the mind, or trying to find ultimate relief from stress or anxiety apart from God, is not Christian. And if you remember nothing else, just remember that. Right? Well, hopefully our, our conversation on this matter, which again, I wasn't originally intending to have, at least get you thinking about this issue and you'll, you'll arrive at uh, a conclusion or approach that uh, honors God in your own life. Okay? So um, in our notes then, we're looking at page 27. I think we sort of got into a, a bit of a discussion about people we just kind of touched down on the first few points, but I'm just going to kind of go back and review them briefly. And um, we'll look first of all at uh, how a Hindu person would want to find salvation or conduct themselves as a good Hindu. And again, we're, we're studying this stuff because we know Hindus. There's a, there's a Hindu man that attends the vine every week. He's there every week. And, um, I mean, he told me last week again that he's a Hindu, but he comes out, and uh, he's from India, and this is an opportunity for us to witness to him, and I think we can be more effective in witnessing to men like that if we understand a little bit about how they think and how they tick and what they were taught growing up. So Hindus live in Windsor. They live in your neighborhood, my neighborhood, 
and understanding a little bit about how they think will help us to be better at apologetics. So um, again, we're sort of looking at some of these different worldviews and religions, and as we move through the course, we're then going to start to unpack to a greater degree how to respond. But for, for now, we're focusing primarily upon understanding. So four ends of the Hindu life. The first is a good Hindu wants to learn to act rightly, and rightly is defined according to Hindu laws in the Vedas and the Upanishads and so forth. They're, they're religious books. Their religious books were um, written probably not much more than about 1500 BC, and they continued to be written right into the what we now call the ADs after Christ. And so one of the, one of the Hindu ends to a, a successful life is to learn to obey the Hindu laws, then to manage wealth and support your family. So there's sort of an economic, familial, social aspect to a, a good Hindu's life. Uh, to satisfy human desires le legitimately, be it uh, desires for food or pleasure or sex or whatever it might be. And to attain what's called moksha, or liberation from the cycles of life, or to at least attain a chance to attain it. Now, what do we mean by that? To attain a chance to attain it. Does an untouchable in his or her life have the opportunity to attain moksha? No. It's impossible for a, an, an untouchable to go from that place in life to moksha. If they conduct themselves properly as a Dalit or an untouchable, they can move up the next caste and up the next caste and up the next caste, and then they're ready to attain moksha. So that's why we say uh, Hindus, some of them are at a point in the caste system where they are actually poised in their mind to attain moksha. Others are simply trying to get through this life to get to a better place where they have the potential to attain a chance to attain moksha. So this is very different than Christian thinking where uh, everybody hypothetically has an opportunity to be saved, right? So you don't have to sort of be born in the right country, the right social stratus in order strata to be poised for uh, salvation within Christianity, but that's true within Hinduism. And then one would want to engage in what, what are called the ten great observances. So there's uh, patience or firmness and stability, and there, there's all the, the Hindu names for this down the side there in brackets. Forgiveness, uh, self-control, and contentment. Actually, many of these virtues, if they're focused on Christ, sound very Christian. The, the moral basis of these virtues sound very Christian, but they're for a different purpose. Not to steal or conceal or be selfish. Uh, cleanliness, purity, and honesty. Control over senses and sexual energy. Right knowledge of the scripture. Uh, material and spiritual knowledge or study. Truth, absence of anger. And of course, there's umpteen dozen ways to express this. So uh, Hindu women will have a dot on their heads. And that dot represents the third eye. So... Uh, basically, that's their way of saying that I, I am living such a life, I'm focusing on the divine energy uh, and, or divine essence that is within me. So that's what that dot represents, the divine I. Their commitment to Hinduism, they used to do black ones uh, or red ones, depending on your caste. Now they often color coordinate them with their saris. 
more fashionable. But uh, that dot represents a focus on the divine essence. So there's different practices or different things like that within Hinduism that, in their mind, help them to attain these virtues. Now, keep this in mind. You might say, well, these sound very Christian. I mean, absence of anger, focus on truth, spiritual study, knowledge. You know, you don't want to be a, a thief or selfish or self-control or any of that kind of stuff. But the, the way that these virtues differ from Christian virtues, or at least biblical Christian virtues, are in their purpose. So let's say this represents God, and the ultimate goal is some form of union with God. Now, Christians speak of union with God as well. We just speak of it differently, and we'll talk about that later. But just for the sake of conversation, Hindus are striving for union with God. We're striving for union with God. It's radically different, but again, let's just use that language. So the question is, where do good works fit into all of this? Well, let's assume life is moving this way, right? Well, for the Hindu, virtue is a means of union with God. That's not Christian, though. At least not, it's not biblical Christianity. There's some Christian groups that teach that, that one can sort of appease God or uh, somehow get God's attention by virtuous activity. Um, rather, our virtue is a response to a God of grace. So we encounter God first, and then we engage in virtue as a response. We live out our lives virtuously as a response to God's grace in our lives. Not as a means of getting union with God, but as a necessary result of union with Christ when God graciously invades our lives and saves us. So while the outward expression of Hindu virtues and ours might look similar, the purpose or the rationale behind them are radically different. Then there are three debts. The first debt is to God. The uh, second debt is to sages and saints. And the third debt is to one's ancestors. So there's ways then that uh, a good Hindu will want to repay these three debts. So we'll talk first about one's debt to God. So how do we do this? Well, we do this by, according to Hinduism, dedicating our lives to service. So we serve mankind. We show reverence for elders or teachers. Uh, we practice nonviolence, truthfulness, respectfulness. We obey scriptural injunctions, and we live with a measure of harmony or protection over the earth. So this includes dietary concerns. So at the next page over, we have vegetarianism, especially among the Brahmins, which are the highest caste. You're going to find the most number of ve vegetarians among the Brahmins. Or purity in diet. So that would involve things like, you know, someone asked a few, last week or a couple weeks ago about eating cows. So that would be forbidden within Hinduism, strictly speaking. It's part of their dietary laws. And if you're a Brahmin and you're really spiritual and committed, I mean, you would refrain from eating any meat. Then uh, a measure of moderation or simplicity. So sometimes you'll see like uh, pictures of old men, usually or old women, and they've uh, left their homes, they've given away their money, and they just sort of sit around. They might teach as gurus, or they perform some sort of extreme religious act 
to live simple lives. So um, I remember once reading an article on a man who wanted to, uh, I guess, discipline his body, uh, free himself from the constraints of his body, and live a simple life. So he lived in total poverty, and his expression of ridding himself from the constraints of his body was to lift his arm in the air. So he lifted his arm in the air, and he kept his arm in the air for 30 years without ever bringing it down. And as a result, the blood circulation was reduced and his fingertips fell off. But that was his way of sort of an extreme ascetic response to freeing himself from himself and uh, living a life of absolute surrender, one could say. Uh, Non-interference in things that are violent. Universality, sort of a respect for and and, uh, recognition of the universe the universe, the dignity of other people, and peace. So one of the things that actually is, is quite likable about Hindus, which sometimes concerns Christians when it comes to certain forms of Islam, is they're, they're a much more peaceful kind of faith. Now, I mean, there's obviously Hindu soldiers, there's a Hindu Indian army, there's Nepalese army, uh, there are people who would say they're Hindus that are very violent, all that kind of stuff. But Hinduism as a religion really tries to emphasize peace. And they're very inclusive, which is why they fit very well into Canada. They're very inclusive, very tolerant. So this is why you can have uh, Hindu people attending church or you might, you might invite them to your church or to a Bible study and often, yeah, we'll come. There's no problem with that because for them, truth is everywhere. And you don't need to sort of squabble over Doctrines and creeds and all that kind of stuff. So it's easy to get Hindus into church. It's easy to get Hindus into conversations about God. But it's very difficult to change the mindset and to start to talk about an exclusive savior, uh, that he's the way, the truth, the life. That kind of stuff is where it just doesn't compute with them for the most part. The second debt is to sages or saints. So these are respected people who've gone before. There are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, that have been identified. One would, uh, if the saint or guru or sage is still living, you would uh, show reverence and service to them. You would, for instance, uh, uh, pay for their food, uh, allow them to have lodgings in your home if they wanted to. You would sort of take care of them. Kind of like the Jews took care of the Levites, the sort of the priestly class. Hindus are responsible to sort of take care of their sages and their gurus and their teachers transmission of scriptural teaching and cultural heritage to your children and the next generation, serving society and the poor without expectation of returns. Obviously, that would not be practiced if in serving someone from a lower caste, you were robbing them of the opportunity to suffer in order to make break free of their caste and move up uh, the, the caste scale in future li- lives. And then the third debt is to one's ancestor, ancestors. So you can repay this by raising one's family in accordance with the moral and ethical teachings of, of Dharma. Now, we did get into a, quite a discussion last week about the caste system. And I know that makes us feel quite uncomfortable. It is true that the caste system was officially outlawed in 1947 when uh, India was no longer a British colony. 
And uh, that was largely as a result of lobbying from Christian missionaries. But uh, as you know, it's kind of hard to take hundreds of millions of people and change a culture in 50 or 60 years. So uh, there would be people living in India or Nepal today, for instance, that wouldn't know much about the caste system because they're raised in a particular part of a city or in a particular culture within that city, and they just wouldn't have much exposure to it. Uh, there are other people, especially in rural areas, that would very much be aware of the caste system, especially those that are untouchables. And the reason for that is they're living in absolute uh, poverty. Now, uh, I did a little bit of research on this. The caste system was established in and around 600 BC and had reached a very complex form by about 700 AD. So that's quite a period of time. So as I mentioned to you, there's four castes, and there's one group that's outside the caste system, but under every one of those castes, there could be thousands upon thousands of sub-castes. So you got sort of the four big ones, but under each you could have thousands and thousands of very complex uh, sub-castes. So they are the Brahmins, that's the highest caste, and these are the folks that are um, functioning, or at least historically were functioning as priests. And as I mentioned to you last week, they would tend to have the lighter skin. So you, the lighter the skin you have, the higher on the caste scale, the darker the skin, the lower. It's not like you're born and they sort of hold you up against a paint chip and you're thrown into a particular caste. <laughs> But those people have intermarried for so long that the whiter folks tend to be higher up in the caste scale and the darker-skinned uh, Asians are, are lower on the caste scale. And then there's the Kshatriyas. Uh, this would be the, the warriors and nobles. The Vaisyas. Again, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but these are the merchants and the artisans. There's the Shudras, there's the slaves of a lowest class. By the way, this group is not allowed to hear the scriptures or search for salvation, even though they're within the, the caste system. They're at the bottom of the, the rung of the official caste system, but even they are not allowed to look for salvation. They just sort of have to live out their lives and hope that at the end of it, they'll be reincarnated, maybe another uh, step up the, the, the rung, uh, the, the, the caste ladder. So there's hundreds of subcasts. The untouchables, they're outside the caste system. They consume polluted water, eat carrion meat, wear disgraceful clothing, watch their children die, and are not permitted to be educated. Ironically, Hindus believe that all humans are essentially the same because they're part of ultimate reality. But the, so the, the ambivalence toward suffering is not so much because they see another human being as ontologically inferior, inferior in terms of their being, but it's good for them to suffer so they can move up the caste system. So it's, it's based more on that than anything else, at least theologically. And uh, as I mentioned, the caste system continues to exist in, in many parts of India today. So that's um, a bit about the caste system, what's called Varna. Joy. How do they watch their children die? Assuming they're in poverty and they can't do anything for them? Mm. Yeah, they have no... 
there's, there's no mechanism within their culture to respond to illness or to respond to extreme poverty. They just sort of have to let themselves suffer. There's no tools to sort of rise up out of it in and of itself. Yeah. 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 There are many other countries in the world where there's examples, of course, of extreme poverty and suffering. But there are people within probably most, if not all, of those countries that would at least recognize the injustice of it. The unique thing about Hinduism is the idea that it's good for you. Not just that you deserve it. There might be some people that just don't have a heart for other people within their culture. Well, you deserve that. But the idea that it's good for you. You don't want to rob that person of the opportunity to advance out of their lesser state to a higher state so you allow it to happen for that reason, which is a different motivation than you see with a lot of poverty around the world. And therefore, your approach to Hindus living in those kind of contexts has to be different. I, I would imagine, I've never heard this to be true, but I would imagine that missionaries working among untouchables might even have to do some work in convincing them that their state of being is not a good state, not an acceptable state, and that there's a better life out there for them. Well, I'm just guessing that would be... Yeah, so missionaries typically who are working with Hindus, like if you were, if you were to go to India as a missionary and your goal is to reach Hindus, uh, for the most part you would work within one social caste because you're not going to plant a church with three or four castes any more than uh, you're going to assume that a, a girl, let's say, that's raised in the merchant class is going to be accepted into a Brahmin family and, and marry one of the sons. It's just not going to happen. It's extreme segregation. Yeah, it's, it's not so much um, not valuing the other groups. It's really strategic. It, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to go to Iraq, and I'm going to simultaneously evangelize Shiites and Sunnis and plant a church with both of them in it. Yeah, good luck. It's almost like you've got to send one missionary to evangelize the Shiites, one to evangelize the Sunnis, and maybe at some point you can introduce them to each other and their common bonds in Christ and help them to understand that they are, in fact, brothers in Christ regardless of their past. But it's even more extreme in, in, uh, in India where for thousands of years there has been a complete separation, almost even like a genetic separation between these people groups. And people would not attend a church. Like, if, Let's say you have a church filled with converts from the Shudras caste and you're out in the street and you meet someone from the Brahmin caste and you're leading that person to Christ. You want them to experience Christian community. Well, let's come, come to church. What, church with a bunch of Shudras? No way. I'm not going to show up. This wouldn't happen. So it's not so much the missionary trying to keep people apart, but it's understanding the cultural realities that these groups, for the most part, won't mix. Yeah. Um, if you're just walking on the street and you're a Brahmas, how do you know another person from another 
No. <laughs> uh, it is on their birth certificates, or at least it used to be, according to these, uh, this couple that uh, we met in uh, Virginia that time I was telling you about, or at least in, in some sort of their birth record documents or some sort of reference to that. But I'm not sure that you would know other than the fact that you may live in the same neighborhood or the community or you might know by last names or those. I'm not exactly sure how that would all work. But I, I don't, it's not that they would have no interaction because, for instance, the Brahmins would use Shudras as household servants and slaves or they would uh, you know, have some measure. If a, if a person in a Brahmin caste is uh, functioning as a priest, they would have some association with the next caste down, which is basically running the government. And so they would be aware based upon occupations and stuff like that in broad strokes. But I'm not sure just walking on the street that you would necessarily be able to identify someone within one caste of you. Yeah? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I'm not sure. Did I see a hand back over this way to the corner of my eye? Okay. So here's two core beliefs then that are fundamental to Hinduism. The one is called Atman, and you would commonly know this as reincarnation. In fact, there's people, there are people in, in the West that believe in reincarnation, but they don't realize they got it from Hinduism. So the Atman... Uh, or the uncreated soul must cycle through various lives, all filled with suffering, in order to attain moksha. Moksha is liberation from suffering and union with Brahma. Samsara is the great wheel of life and death. So you have uh, a sequence of events where you're moving sort of up in terms of life forms, I guess you could say. And when you finally get to the top, you enter into Brahman. Or, how do you spell it? Brahma. Now, you can drop back down. So you could be here for, I don't know, 10 generations, 10 lifetimes, and drop all the way back down, I suppose, so this could go on for, hypothetically, millions of years, trying to work your way around the samsara. Oh, yeah. All animals and bacteria and plant life and everything else. Mm. No, you would always exist in some sort of corporeal form. But then... You know, I mean, there's some pretty low corporeal forms, right? They don't have a hell. Born as a flu virus or something like that. No. No, there's no, pl there's no place of damnation. There's no place uh, like hell or the lake of fire. But in the suffering of your life, you can go around and around and around and around. And, of course, there's no assurance of... You could be the best Brahmin out there, hold your arm in the air for 30 years, your fingertips drop off, and everyone says, man, this person has completely disengaged from their self, but the next life round you could be born some... Like 
There might be less suffering. There might be less suffering involved, but suffering's virtuous because suffering is the means of moving up. So you can be a beautiful bird flying around eating all the food you want, but that's not going to move you up very much. Now, when a a person, let's say a human being or an animal dies, what happens is there's what's called the transmigration of the soul. So the soul vacates the, the body, and the transmigration of the soul migrates into some other form of life. So every, every, every Hindu knows this one unequivocal truth, and that is if you're still here, you haven't detained Brahma yet. So you've done something wrong. And I mean, they would perhaps hold to the view that reality is infinite in terms of its um, length of time. So there's the chances of you in this one life finally breaking free from it, if you've hypothetically been here forever already trying, are slim to none. So if, if a Hindu person actually thinks about this, it's actually quite a depressing system, quite a depressing cycle of life to be part of. So Hinduism is often presented as sort of peaceful and uh, the kind of, you know, if you, if you want to sort of live well with other people, live a serene life, shed violence, kind of become in touch with other people, and you're sort of, oh, it's kind of, there's an attraction to it, even among Westerners. But in reality, it's a very bleak, very dark, very hopeless existence to be in, if a person actually thinks about it. Because you're here, that means that you've been here for a long time and you've never attained moksha yet. So this is the samsara wheel. Now karma. Here's another influence upon the West. You, I hear people say this all the time. Bad karma. I think there's even food items called this. And people commonly use this word. Well, this is a result of Hinduism. So karma is essentially the law of cause and effect. Merit and demerit attach themselves to Atman according to how one lives. So you got to be good. And if you're good, then you, know, you sort of reap what you sow, what goes around, comes around, that kind of thing. So this is a, a sort of a, 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 a focus on uh, a certain interpretation or certain understanding or focus as to how morals work. You got bad karma, you got good karma. Laws of cause, cause and effect. So just broadly speaking, when it comes to reaching out to Hindus, and again, some of the apologetic material we'll deal with in further weeks will answer this more fully, but I, I want to give you just some very basic things that you can at least begin to focus on if you have a Hindu friend or you have an interest in having conversation with Hindus, and then we'll take our break. The first is, is that you should talk about our personal God, that there's an advantage to being a Christian, that our concept of God is in fact a superior concept of God. It doesn't necessarily prove that he exists, but our concept of God is a superior concept. He is a God that loves his creatures. He is a God with whom one can actually have a relationship, with whom one can talk to in prayer. He is a God that speaks to us through the indwelling presence of his spirit and through the word of God. And this is a powerful thing, especially to people who are in suffering or pain, 
to be told that, no, God actually loves you. He cares for you. He has an interest in you. You can actually have a personal encounter with him. This is very powerful. So you should talk about that. So here we have this idea of union with Christ. We need to be very careful using our terms accurately. Union with God for us is different than uh, the Hindu. The Hindu says union with God is dissolution of oneself into ultimate reality, into oneness. But our union with Christ is much more uh, based upon love and mercy. It's where this God with whom, whom we have offended allows us to enter into a gracious and loving relationship with him, uh, allows us to find our, get this, identity in him. This is why we say we are in Christ. In Christ, if you think about it, is a weird language if you don't understand the doctrine of unity with Christ. What is, in Christ, how do, you, how do you go in something? Well, it's such, our, our identification with Christ is so radical that we can use that strange language and it's accurate language. We are in Christ. When God looks at us, he looks at us through the merits of Christ. We have an up-close personal relationship with Christ. Corporately, we're called the bride of Christ. How much more intimate does it get than that? We're called sons and daughters, joint heirs, adopted children. We have this radical unity with God, not because of what we've done or what we've merited, but because God sought us out and loved on us. So it's not just that we're standing beside him, holding hands, enjoying a relationship. It's not just that we're now in proximity to God, but we are in God in the sense that our identity is now wrapped in his identity. 